This is episode 552 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Solomon, at least in the Ecclesiastes, seems like he's in the middle of a spiritual midlife crisis. I mean, when he was young, he ran after God with reckless abandon, and God blessed him with wealth and wisdom beyond compare. And what did Solomon do with all God had given him? Well, he took it for granted, made unbelievably bad decisions about the things God clearly talked about in Scripture, and he followed his own heart and forsook the wisdom of God. I mean, he began to believe his own press releases and followed the ways of the world and not of God. Literally, he did not finish his race and life well. And we know how that turned out. Disaster with a capital D. So now he's older, set in his ways, and longing for the intimacy he once had with God, but refusing to repent and return to him. He wanted the blessings on his terms, but not the obedience, which is always on God's terms. He longed for God's hand of blessing, but not his face of intimacy. Solomon was in an awful place spiritually, and one of his own making. And because he refused the cure God provided for his spiritual illness— he sank into depression. You can see this tragic fall of this great man in the opening chapters of Ecclesiastes. Solomon's view of life is vanity or literally pointless, meaningless. It means nothing. He doesn't see any value in anything he has done or is doing. And what he longed for the most in his life, permanence and purpose and meaning, seemed just out of reach. I mean, how sad. There is much we can learn from Solomon, both good and bad, that is found in the pages of the Ecclesiastes. So join with us as we learn how to finish the race well and leave Laodicea behind. Finish well. You know, when you're younger, you don't really think about finishing because that's way out there in the future and you're too busy just trying to make ends meet. When you're like a teenager, it's all about hormones and all about what you're going to do. And, you know, my parents say this and I want to do this. And when you get into your 20s, of course, you're starting your working career and maybe you're starting a family and there's so much stuff to do. You need to buy a house, you get a car, you just pay your bills. You know, there's stress at work. You're working a long hours to get promoted and all that. Then when you get into your 30s, you're in your, in your early 40s, your little cherub children are now teenagers. And you know what that's like, not cherubs anymore. You know, and so you've got all that kind of stuff. As James Dobson once said, the goal of a parent with a teenage child is just to get them through it. You're not going to teach them nothing, just get them through it. And so you've got all that going on. And, and then you roll into your 50s. And in your 50s, it, I, we should be coasting here. Most of my uh, kids are gone. Maybe I'm a grandparent now. My house is almost paid off. I'm, I'm kind of at a... Uh, a financial situation where I can rest a little bit. I've achieved probably as using the Peter principle from that book a long time ago, I've achieved as high as I'm going to achieve in the organization I'm at. And if you have a job that's physical, your physicality begins to wear down in your 50s. And and then when you get into your 60s, you have a tendency of looking back a lot. Now your kids have kids. And now you're seeing how they live their lives and you're seeing maybe what impact you've made in your life. And you have a tendency 
being in my 60s, my late 60s, I can tell you this, you have a tendency of reflecting back over everything with different eyes. Did my life matter? Did my life have purpose? Everything that I devoted my life to, like my job or building a house or a business or something, was it worth it? Did it really pay off the words of Christ about laying up treasures on, in heaven versus treasures on earth have a tendency of speaking louder to you as you get older? And, and then uh, when you reach into your 70s, you have an option. Uh, in our culture, when you reach into your 70s, it's all about you. I mean, it's just all about you. Uh, because now you have money and allegedly, and you have a, you, you know, you're retired, you can do what you want. And, and so, you know, instead of being even more devoted, retired to the Lord, most people in their seventies, I found this out even in churches are just, it's just about having a good time and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and then we just kind of move on this continuum. You know, early on in the continuum, we're just too busy. We're just full of energy and vigor and got these plans and goals and everything. We, we don't stop and think about the permanent things in life. And we're raising kids, which has a tendency of sucking all the energy out of us. Then we're raising teenagers, which means we, it's even worse. You know, then we have grandkids and business and, you know, it's just, um, it's this, this race that we're on until we stop and sit back and reflect and go, was it worth it? As you get older, you begin to think about finishing. Not starting, but finishing. Am I going to finish my life well? Are people going to look at me and say, well, that was a godly woman. That was a godly man. That was someone I want to emulate my life after. Do our children tell their children about things that we did of lasting value? I remember as a young child, I would get up early on Saturday morning, and I saw my parents there in the living room, holding hands, praying, and they were praying for me. I, I was eight years old when I saw that, and I, I've never forgotten that. Or, or is everybody just too busy doing their things? And, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting continuum of life that we're on, and all of us are on that. All of us are. So was Solomon. The only reason why... Um, or I was telling Karen this, the only person I think that could have ever written the book of Ecclesiastes was Solomon. Because Solomon was the richest man on the planet at that time. Richer than Elon Musk or some guy in Saudi Arabia that owns all the oil wells. He was rich. He was influential. There was a time, not now when he's writing this, but there was a time when his relationship with God was so tight that God, you know, said, you know, now you're going to rule this nation. You're going to rule my people. Tell me what you want. Do you want riches? Do you want, you know, glory? No, I just want a, a, a soft heart and the ability to hear your voice. And so God gave him that and blessed him immensely. He wrote the book of Proverbs or most of it. He wrote the song of Solomon. And, and by the time we get to Ecclesiastes, he's walked away from all of it, all of it. You know, um, he was once really tight with the Lord, and now he can't find that intimacy anymore. And the reason why is because of sin. He did everything the Lord told him not to do. He multiplied houses. He multiplied wives. I mean, 300 wives, 700 concubines, or whichever reverse of that is, 1,000 different women who are now bringing their pagan deities into the temple of God. And Solomon's like, whatever, that, that's fine. 
You know, you do what you want. When Solomon gets old, he looks on his life and all his wives, we read this in 2 Kings, all his wives have turned his heart away. And then we go back and say, well, he's just an old man. He's like 80 years old. And all these young women are coming in, just blowing him over and, and you know, being real aggressive with him. And you know, poor Solomon is this old man. He, he can't do anything until you look at his age. And he was 48 years old when this stuff was happening. 48 in our culture. I mean, that's like when you're on top of your game when it comes to stuff like that. and Can't find God anymore. I'm, I'm not even looking for God anymore. And so I, I, I'm, I'm faced with these questions. I'm getting older. I mean, I have everything that I want. I've, I snap my fingers. I think the thought, and it is brought to me. Everybody honors me. Everybody bows down to me. Everybody thinks I'm something and I'm great. I, I have money. I, can, I have food. I have wine. I have drink. I have drugs. I have all, any sort of entertainment. If, if I want to take my wife to have dinner at Paris tonight, we get on a plane, we fly, we come back. It means nothing to me. You and I can't write this book. You and I struggle. We don't have this kind of opulence, but he did. And the questions he asks is, how do you finish well? I mean, is this all there is to life? I mean, surely there must be more to it than this. Solomon knew the answer. Recommit your life back to the Lord. Surrender like the song we just sang. I surrender all, that, that Keswick song. You know, surrender back to him. But he refused because my life right now is going my way and I'm not going to do that. And so therefore, I'm going to try to find satisfaction in everything else in life. I, I'm going to, we'll find this in this first chapter, I'm, gonna, I'm going to use my mind and I'm going to think of everything out there that will bring me pleasure. Everything. I mean, the movies I watch, the... Um, Whatever I eat, whatever I drink, you know, whatever sensual kind of pleasure I can have. I want to think lofty thoughts. I want to build things to my own glory. I want to build cities and temples and tabernacles and, and name them. I have streets named after me. I want to have businesses. I want to be on the news every single day. I want to run for public office. I want everybody to wish they were me. And then, of course, I'll find satisfaction. Then I'll find happiness. Then I'll find peace and contentment. And he didn't. He didn't. We got 11 chapters of this stuff, of him trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and failing, just like many of us are doing, trying to find satisfaction in anything other than God, anything other than him. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. All right, sub it up for Solomon. Tell us, the, tell us the answer to the puzzle right at the very beginning. Tell us what you have discovered as the richest man, at one time the wisest man who ever lived. We all want to be you. We all are working hard to just be able to be kind of like you, to possess just a little bit of what you have. Tell us, what, is it, what does it mean to you? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanities of vanity, all is vanity. I already shared this with you, that that word means meaningless. It means nothing. It means it's empty, it's futile, it's pointless. Everything about life, everything that I have done, everything that I am doing, my very existence, the reason why I wake up in the morning having opulence like you and I can't even imagine means nothing. I'm empty. Um, it's, it's meaningless. It's, 
It's like a futile attempt to try to be happy, but I'm not. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Now listen very carefully. Um, I want to give you a theological truth, but I don't want to confuse you. Um, Everything in the Bible is true. Would you agree? But that doesn't necessarily mean every statement in the Bible is a true statement. Here's how it works. When Jesus was confronted by the scribes and Pharisees and he was doing these miracles, the scribes and Pharisees said this to Jesus, recorded in the scripture. He cast out demons by Beelzebub. Do you remember that? He cast out demons by the power of darkness. Now, that's not a true statement. That was a false accusation they were making against the Lord. Nevertheless, it's true in the fact that that's exactly what they said. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so when you're looking at Ecclesiastes, you have a man here who has fallen in his relationship with God. And the sad part about this is there's no indication he ever went back. None. It kind of exemplifies the idea how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Here's the richest man of all. At the end of, uh, of Ecclesiastes in the 12th chapter, you see him coming to a final conclusion after trying everything else the world has. You know what? The only thing in life that really matters is to, you know, to love God and serve him. Okay. But he didn't. There's no indication in the last... A decade of his life that he ever did that. Nothing changed in Israel. He didn't tear down the, the temples to Satan that he had built. There was no indication that there were any, any fruit with that. In the book of Job, he gets tempted and gets attacked, and at the very end, he comes to the same conclusion. But then Job, of course, is serving the Lord with fervency until he dies, even more so than he was in the beginning, not so with Solomon. The end of this of his life is really, really sad. He knows the truth, but he cannot untangle himself from money, from fame, from fortune, from sensual pleasures. He's not going to make that tough decision to say no to my old life and yes to the new life, even though he knew, he knew what he was doing was wrong. There was a time in his life when he was younger that he was passionate for the Lord and God gave him wisdom. The book of Proverbs is a testimony to that wisdom. By the time we get to Ecclesiastes, the godly wisdom is gone. And what Solomon is trying to do is use earthly wisdom to try to understand the situation that he's in. For example, in chapter 2, it says, and I won't read all this to you. So, you know, it says, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, says, I said in my heart, come, I will test you with mirth. And therefore, enjoy pleasure. In other words, I'm going to do everything I want to do to make me feel good. So, verse 3, I searched my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine and wisdom. And, and I, uh, verse number 4, I did great works. Verse number 5, I built myself gardens and orchards and all sorts of stuff. Verse number 6, I made myself big pools of water. Verse number 7, I acquired servants and slaves and manservants. And verse number 8, I gathered for myself silver and gold. I'm just trying to satisfy my earthly desires here. Verse 9. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in, Jeru- in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. No, Solomon, you, you accurately said that, but that's not true. 
because there's nothing you're doing right now, and you'll find in the next couple chapters, nothing that you're doing which emulates godly wisdom. It's just the wisdom of man. So Solomon here looks to all life is meaningless, even a man who has everything. All life is meaningless, and, and therefore I, 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 I don't want to live that way, so I'm going to ask some, some questions. I want to know why life is like this, and is it really meaningless? And then I'm going to try to find an answer. I'm going to look at nature to try to figure that out. And then I want to reflect on what I've learned, and then I'm going to get depressed, just like you and I would be. You know, does life really have no meaning at all? And then I come to the conclusion, yeah, pretty much my life means nothing. And then all of a sudden, I reflect on the fact that it means nothing. And I know that I could change it, but I refuse to change it, and therefore it leads to depression. That's exactly what would happen with us. It may even be happening with you now, but that's exactly what happens with Solomon. He begins with a question, and then he tries to find an answer. He reflects on that, and then you're going to find Solomon hits the skids. I mean, he's depressed. I mean, I get depressed reading it. You know, the questions that you ask, and some of these questions are the same questions I've asked about myself, and the answer's right there, Solomon. God has set the table. He's presented everything for you. All you have to do, like the prodigal son, is return and go back, but you won't. Let's look at the questions. First, the statement, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity. Everything is meaningless. Everything is pointless. And if that's the case, here's my question. What profit has a man from all his labor? Getting up in the morning, going to work, coming home, mowing the lawn on Saturday, day in and day out, getting older and older and older, trying to accomplish something of value. What profit, what does it benefit a man from all this labor in which he toils toils. It's not like, I love my job. I love what I do. I can't wait. Toils under the sun. I mean, what is the purpose of that? What's the purpose of life? I mean, what's the difference between me and a dog or me and a horse? I mean, uh, you, you have a dog and a dog wakes up in the morning and all a dog wants to do is eat. So you feed the dog, and it goes out, and it does nothing. It doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't build a, a you know, place for it to stay. It doesn't write books. It doesn't appreciate music. It doesn't embrace beauty. And then all of a sudden, a dog you know, has to go to the bathroom, and it goes to the bathroom, and it runs around. And yes, it comes to you, and you pet it, and you love it, and you move on down the road. And the dog gets older, and the dog dies. The value of a dog is pretty much the value we place in a dog as a companion. As a companion, but a dog and most animals are just concerned about existence. I want to know where I'm going to live. I want to know what I'm going to eat, and that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm incapable of understanding love or virtue or loyalty or beauty or music or literature or stuff of that nature. And the difference between a dog or an animal and a man is the fact that God has equipped us with something of a higher consciousness than an animal has. Although we have a tendency of superimposing on animals human characteristics. That's what all the movies do. You ever notice that? We're different. We're different. We can ask these questions. What profit is it? for me to do everything that I'm doing. I'm 37 years old. I'm 52 years old. I'm 61 years old. I'm 75 years old. And I'm looking back at my life. Was it worth it? 
Everything that I did, for what purpose? Just so I can have a bigger house, I can wear nicer clothes, I can you know, eat better meals. I mean, what is the purpose of life? What, what's going on here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And this is Solomon, who has everything, says, I mean, is this all there is? Is this what life is really like? Does it just now kind of relegate me to the position of an animal? That I just go out and work to have more and, and hold on to more so that sometimes I die and leave everything I've worked for to somebody else that hasn't worked for it? Solomon addresses that issue. I mean, what's the point of life? I mean, is it just survival? We're in America, and so therefore we're in an opulent society. Many of us have never missed a meal. Uh, we have food everywhere. Most people have health care. Most people have clothes to wear. Most people have cars to drive. The fact is, according to the rest of the world, we are, even our, the poorest of us are super rich. But so, I mean, is it just survival? Is, is that all there is to life? I'm just some sort of animal? Or is, as Jesus said, is there more to life than food and clothing and money or the stuff money can buy? That was the whole lesson we had Tuesday night about uh, Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, don't worry about these things. He will take care of these things because your life is of greater value. You're supposed to see things from a spiritual plane. That's how it's supposed to be, Solomon. And if there, if there is something to life, more than just food and clothing and money and the stuff money can buy and just you know hustling around for a buck and worrying about the business and saving my money so I can buy more stuff later. I mean, if there is that, well, what is it? What is it? Is there some value? Is there some purpose or some goal? Is, is there something that I can commit my life to that transcends just money, that transcends me? I mean, I, I'm only here for a while. I'm here, I don't know, 60 years, 70 years, some people less, some people more. And while I'm here, can't I make a difference? And if I'm going to make a difference in the world or difference in somebody's life or even a difference in my own family, then it has to be not all about me. It has to be about something greater than me. Here's Solomon. He wakes up in the morning in this massive bed with silk sheets and people willing to standing around waiting for his every whim to be met. Whatever he wants for breakfast, it's brought to him and everybody comes to him and they're on their very best behavior. And he sits up in bed and he looks and he goes, I got all of this and I'm empty because I don't have this vibrant relationship with God like I had once time had. Now, what is the purpose of me even being here, the purpose of my existence? Was I born just to do stuff and get old and die? Am I just taking up space? Or does my life truly have meaning? Purpose, something to be proud of. Or is it true that everything means nothing? That my life means nothing? that the money I have means nothing, that the fact that I'm here just for a, a little while and during my short little vapor of a life, I'll have everybody serve me so that when I die, what, people remember me? I mean, what, what does that do for me? I mean, uh, there's, no, there's no lasting benefit to anyone. I mean, how does that work out? Is it true if I believe that vanity of vanity, meaningless of meaningless, everything is meaningless, is it true that that means everything I've experienced, everything I've done, everything I love, 
Everything he gave, what I thought my life meaning, really is pointless because I'm doing it just for me and not for him. See the questions? You ever asked yourself these questions? No, because we're too busy on that treadmill. We're too busy working really hard. I don't got time to reflect on things. I don't have time to spend time in God's word or pray because I'm just going and going and going and going and going and doing more and doing more. And I got responsibilities and things to do and, and kids to take care of and money to make and appointments to keep and building, 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 building. And we never stop and go, what is the purpose of all of this? Is there a greater purpose in it than just me? And this, of course, is coming from the man who had everything. So if life is more than just, if it's not true that everything that makes me me is meaningless, then why the weariness and toil in this life? I mean, what is the purpose of the pain and the suffering and the energy and the, the time that we spend just trying to accumulate trinkets and toys and houses and cars in the great scheme of things when we give them all away when we're done? I'm preparing this and I'm asking these questions and the thought that popped into my head was, are you depressed yet? Yeah, I am. Are you? Yeah, I'm pretty depressed. And so was Solomon. But he had everything. I mean, we would say if I could just get where Solomon was, I'd never be depressed. I mean, just think, if I could just snap my fingers, have everything that I want. What do you want today, Steve? I don't know. You know, I think I'd like to go to Carowinds, but I don't want to go to Carowinds with anybody else. I want you to shut the park down. I want to go with Karen. I want to ride any rides that I want. That's what I want. Make it happen. Boom. I mean, that's not what I would want to do, by the way. Okay, I just... <laughs> Letting you know. I mean, walking with you would be great, but that's not what I want to do. But the fact is, whatever you want to do, you just snap a finger and it's done. That's the kind of man, the, the power that he had. And yet, I think he was depressed. I'm having a hard time getting out of bed in the morning because I get out of bed and it's just monotony. It's just the same thing. We're going, I'd love that monotony. He is in that monotony, and he doesn't. There was a time when he had an intimate relationship with God and God gave his life purpose and meaning and he woke up for a cause greater than himself, for a discovery of the wisdom of God and the, the relationship with him and the ability to bear his fruit. And then he got his eyes off God and began to sink like Peter did walking on the waves to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, instead of looking up to God and saying, save me and being restored, he just paddled harder and dog paddled the best he could and tried to find satisfaction in everything else that turns our heart away from God. So what profit has a man from all the, his labor in which he toils under the sun? Here's the answer. And he sums it up in verse number nine. I love this. I can almost feel him sigh. Oh, well, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. The same old, same old. That what's already happened is what's going to happen to me. And that which is going to happen, I can't do anything about it. I'm on this like depressing trek towards death. And there's nothing new. There's nothing exciting. There's nothing to... to 
to get my interest, to get me out of bed in the morning, to put a spring in my step. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, this is Solomon's initial conclusion to life, void of God. There was a time, and if you read the book of Proverbs, when all of life was about seeking wisdom and knowledge and understanding God and being able to commit our lives to God and trust him with all our heart and him directing our paths. And he gave Solomon some mandates, what you're not to do, because if you do these things, they will turn your heart away from me. Solomon said, I want the wisdom of God, but I'm not going to obey it. I'm going to do what all the world says I need to do. And the wisdom of God dissipates. And here we find him depressed. Now that's the answer for Solomon. And so now that he knows how it's going to turn out, it's just like this sick little poem, it's a depressing poem, that which has been will be, that which is done is done, and there's nothing new under the sun. I think I'm going to take another nap. <laughs> Solomon has traces of wisdom. I mean, he's seen things understood things of God that you and I still marvel at today. And so he began reflecting on life. You know what? I'm looking at my life and I'm looking at God's creation. God created me and God created everything that I see. And I could almost imagine him walking out on the portico, looking up at the sky, looking, looking down on the city of Jerusalem there, looking down on all the stuff that he had done, all the things that God had created in nature, and again began to reflect on the character of nature versus the lack of substance in his own life. And here's his reflection. Begins in verse 3. And the conclusions are this, you know, everything has a purpose in God's creation, but me. It seems like God seems to have a plan for everything that he created. But since I've walked away from God, I can't find God's plan for my life. So I'm just aimlessly wandering around trying to take care of me, playing whack-a-mole with my problems as a plan for everything he created but me. Now, I don't have to look at people to find this truth. I can find this truth even in nature. It seems, for example, that everything God creates lasts forever. It doesn't age. It doesn't get old. It still functions the way God wants it to function. It's not wasting away like I am, like my life is. And I can see Solomon saying, surely, surely this is not God's design for mankind. Because he created nature one way, I think he created mankind the same way, yet somehow I've missed the mark. Somehow I am wondering. Verse 3, what profit has a man from all his labor, in which he toils under the sun? Let's reflect on that. Okay, what's the permanence of life here? It's really simple. One generation passes away, and another generation comes. Everything about man is transitory but the earth abides forever. There's a permanence in God's creation, but I don't feel that permanence in mankind. I mean, I'm here just for a little season. My dad was here before me. My sons are going to be here after me. And two generations from now, nobody even knows who we are. When my mom passed away, um, she had on her wall uh, family pictures. She had pictures of my kids when they were young. She had pictures of uh, her parents, my grandparents, uh, on the wall. And we took those pictures down and put them in a box and put them up in the attic. I think my brother might even have it. Put them up in the attic. And it dawned on me that, you know, these 
people, this mamaw and papaw, my grandparents that made such a profound impact in my life. My mother knew them and put a picture. I now have taken the picture and put it in a box. And when I'm gone, nobody even knows who they are. Nobody. My kids never met them. I think Krista did one time, but never, never even met them. And it's like one generation's here, and then it means a whole lot for a small bit of time, and then two generations later, you forget who they are. There's no permanence in life. There's permanence in nature, but there's not permanence in life. Solomon goes, look, the earth has permanence, but I don't. I'm, I'm 42 years old. I'll be 43 years old tomorrow, and I'll be 53 and 63, and pretty soon I'm going to stand before the Lord, and he's going to ask me what I've done with my life. Did I finish well? And I can talk about all the stuff I built and all the stuff that I accumulated, and all that stuff is still going to be on earth, and I'm going to be standing there empty-handed before God saying, everything that you gave me, I squandered because it was all about me and not about you. You can feel his thoughts here. I'm getting older. My life has little lasting value to show for it. I mean, what, what did you do with your life, Steve? Well, I, um, I worked as an accountant, and I did a whole lot of tax returns. I mean, I did like 43 years with the tax returns for this company, and they gave me a gold watch and gave me a party when I was 65 years old and put me out the pasture, and somebody else now is doing that. I, 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 can't, I can't tell you the... Um, how that view of life became so real to me when I was an accountant. Um, I'm working in the CPA firm, and the idea, of course, is try to get your name on the door. Uh, as I shared with you before, you know, the firm was Tarpley and Underwood, and I was like 26, and this uh, uh, Underwood, Jim Underwood, was like 30, and he was just a gifted accountant, and so he was a partner in the firm. The two of them guys started together. Uh, uh, Harvey Tarpley was the older guy, probably 40. You know, seems older back then, probably 40. And, and Jim Underwood's dad was a managing partner, a managing tax partner in Deloitte, Haskin, and Sells, which was one of the big eight CPA firms before everything got merged together in the 2006 and eight uh, debacle. And he was there, he's 50-something years old, and he was working on the tax returns. And by the way, we didn't have computers back then. It was all done like with Pentel and pencils and, and all this kind of stuff with this calculator. And he's, you know, as, as high up at, at Deloitte, Haskins, and Sells that you could possibly be in that local office in Atlanta, and he's working in the middle of tax season, has a massive heart attack, and dies right there on his desk. Bam! And they came in and found him, and of course, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of chilling for our firm since it was the father of uh, Jim Underwood, and what that firm did is they dragged his body out, you know, and sent it to the morgue, and the very next day, do you know who sat behind that desk? Somebody else, because the work's got to go on. There's tax returns to be done. Sorry you died. It was a good ride while you were here, but that's just how life is. And there was somebody else doing those returns. And it hit me. It hit me so hard. Like, like so it was just meaningless. And you're like this rat on a treadmill, and you're running really fast in order to get these food pellets to feed yourself. And then when something happens and you're gone, we can't even wait. We'll mourn you on our free time, but we got to keep that treadmill going. Somebody else is in there because that's just the life in which we live. So what a value, Solomon, do you have? The earth is permanent and you're not. The earth has a purpose and you don't. 
Verse number five, the sun also rises. It rises over here, and it sets over there, and it goes all the way around, and the one thing I can depend on is it's going to come back again where it started from. So every morning I go out, and I know the sun is going to fulfill its purpose. The sun has a purpose. The moon has a purpose. Everything in God's creation has a purpose, and I can't find my purpose. Because my purpose is just all about me. My purpose is just trying to satisfy my needs. I had a purpose when I wrote Song of Solomon and Proverbs, but now my purpose is gone. And if we say, well, my purpose is my children, okay, and it'll last forever. Fact is, someday your kids are going to say, I do to somebody else, and they're going to have their own life, and then what do you do? If your purpose is still your children, now you're a meddling mom or grandma or father. You can't do that. Everything has, my purpose is my job. Till you have a heart attack, till it gets bought out by some firm from Japan, till they downsize, then you're gone. It's just the way life is. There has to be a purpose in life, like there is in nature, that transcends us. Solomon goes out there and looks, and the sun comes up. The sun gives life. The sun's a blessing to everyone. It's amazing when there's a beautiful sunny day. But how about me, the richest man on the earth? Do I, can I even find a purpose in my life like the sun? God has placed the purpose of the sun. Then he talks about the wind. The wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. I don't even understand how the wind works. Nevertheless, it has a purpose and a direction. The wind knows where it's going. It comes this way, and it moves around that way, and it comes back again. And it seems like that, that everything about even the wind and nature has a direction and a purpose and permanence. But I'm the richest man ever, and I can't find any of that in my life. My life seems aimless. It's going nowhere. I mean, I wake up in the morning, and all I'm doing is what's in front of me. I'm working real hard, okay, and then I'm going to work till 6 or 7 and go to bed and eat dinner and, you know, watch a basketball game, and then I'm going to go to bed, and then I'm going to do it again and again and again and again. Maybe I'll take a vacation. Maybe I'll take my wife to a movie, and then eventually I won't be able to do this anymore, and then I'll just wake up one day, and I can't get out of bed, and then I'll die. And then I'll stand before God, and he'll say, what did you do with your life? Well, I... Not much. Everything I've accumulated, everything I've done, I've left behind. There's no treasures in heaven. They're all here on earth. And then he talks about the work of the rivers. Here's what he says. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Oh, look how frustrating is that? It's like pushing that big rock all the way up to the top of the hill, and just as soon as you get there, do you remember from Greek uh, mythology. As soon as you get there, it rolls back down again. You spend your whole life working and never accomplish the goal. Here it is. All the rivers run to the sea, and yet they can't fill the sea up. They're constantly going to the sea and going to the sea and going to the sea, but somehow even the work you're doing never gets complete. And then it's not full to the place in which the rivers come, and there they return again. There's this cycle of work, but there's nothing that allows them to sit back and go, hey, you know what? That's done. I feel good about this. Solomon goes, my life's just like that. But the sea doesn't get discouraged. The rivers don't get depressed like I am. I want to be able to look at my life and say I've accomplished something of lasting value. Well, you've built these stables for like your 
3,000 Persian steeds. Nobody ever has built stables like that. Yeah, but this doesn't satisfy. You got money coming out your ears. I mean, you got people coming to ask you advice. You've got beautiful women surrounding you. Every meal that you have is this massive banquet like Downton Abbey. I know, but it's boring. It doesn't really satisfy me. It's like, it's like, okay, but is that all there is to life? Just food and drink and shelter? You know what Jesus said about that. If you don't, read the chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount. He's sitting here, and he's realizing all of his life is meaningless. I mean, what profit is it for everything that I'm doing if it's only about me? Then he reflects on his life just compared to nature. God has blessed nature with characteristics that Solomon had walked away from. And it then naturally leads to depression. And I'm depressed. So just read this. Verse 8. All things are full of labor. Again, don't, don't be tricked by these English words thinking that they mean what you think they're going to mean in common usage. All things are full of labor. Well, for a man, that means with a pitchfork digging a hole in concrete. For a woman, it means in a hospital giving birth. Now, it's not necessarily what we're talking about here. All things are full of labor. Men cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Um, okay, you're talking th in language 3,000 years ago. We're trying to interpret it in something we can understand. I find this verse a little confusing, so I'm going to look up some of the words and try to figure out exactly what it says in our vernacular, and you're going to see it's very relatable to us today. All things. That literally means like pos in the Greek. Everything, without exception. Everything you can possibly think of are full of labor. That means being a cause of weariness, exhaustion, or being worn out from, note this in the Hebrew, monotony. Oh, oh, I'm exhausted from monotony. I'm wore out. I'm weary. I'm just sick of monotony. Doing the same thing over and over and over again for no greater purpose. The same thing, and the, you know, accumulating wealth or fame or possessions for me is not a satisfying purpose. All things are full of labor, so much so that men cannot express it, or literally, I can't put it into words. I can't tell you about this labor, this toil, this exhaustion, how I, you know, I get up every morning and do the same thing for just a small little reward, maybe financially. But life's bigger than that. It's like running on a treadmill. You grow tired and weary and exhausted and go nowhere. You realize that? Nowhere. Sit on an exercise bike, and boy, you're just biking as hard as you can. You can even put a little video in front of you so you look like you're on the Swiss Alps, you know, watching that. But the fact is, as soon as you get off that bike, you're still in the same room. You go nowhere. It's just Work and work and work and work and work, and I'm the same. Nothing has changed. Matter of fact, my life feels so meaningless, Solomon says, that I, uh, I can't even express what I'm feeling. I mean, I, I, can't even, I, I can't even tell anybody. I sit down with my wife, and I try to tell her, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, I'm thinking about quitting my job, and uh, 
going to seminary because I want to be a missionary. And the wife says, you can't. We have cars and houses. And what about the kids' education and all that? I, I, I can't even describe to you how I'm feeling. And you can't. It's like, I'm doing what everybody does. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And nothing seems to be working. So you know what? Okay. I, I need to find something exciting. Because if I'm wore out and weary from monotony, then what I need to do is find something exciting, something new in my life. I'll start a business. I'll take up a sport. I'll, I'll, I'll be 55 years old and wear my, go to a tanning bed and wear my low cut shirt with my gold medallion and drive a Mustang, you know, and dye my hair black. I mean, I'll hang around younger people. I'll do whatever I need to to put something exciting in my life. Because if I can get excited about something, then, then I won't be so, caught up in this labor of monotony. And so that's exactly what Solomon wants to do. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The eye's job is to see, and the ear's job is to hear. Yet even though you're doing, the eye is doing what it's supposed to do, it's not satisfying. And the ear is doing what it's supposed to do. It never does it enough to be satisfied with that, content with that, and full of that. And that even leads to depression. Because no matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are never content. And by the way, if it was bad in Solomon's day, just think how bad it is now. You got social media, and everybody wants to be an influencer. What is an influencer? Will I influence people? What, to be like you? That are struggling just like you are? I mean, how, how, does this, how does this even work? And even if we do what we're created to do without God empowering that, even if we, well, I, I know I'm supposed to bear spiritual fruits, and I know I'm supposed to have love, joy, peace, and long-suffering, and grace, and mercy, and all that kind of stuff, so you know what? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give money away, and I'm going to go to the uh, nursing homes and visit people, and I'm going to go to uh, homeless shelters and dish out food to people, and I'm going to do all the things I know I should do in the flesh. That's not, that's not spiritual fruit. It still doesn't satisfy because the satisfaction comes from that connection we have with God that Solomon had walked away from. I need something more. I need something exciting. I need a reason to get up in the morning. And so I'm going to look for something new in my depression. But what I end up with is my depression. There is nothing new. It seems like that what has been will be and what is done will be done and there's nothing new under the sun. I can't find anything to, to get excited about. It's like, you know, yawn. One day done, another soon begun. Everything's the same. There's nothing new under the sun. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix this. I just know that in the flesh, nothing is satisfying me. And this comes from the richest man in the world the richest man in the world. So Solomon is a smart man. Solomon has known the wisdom of God. Solomon refuses to accept this. I, I, I can't believe it's like this. It can't be like this. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to believe 
that all life is meaningless. I'm not going to believe that there's nothing new out there. I'm not going to believe that it's going to end up this way. Because I remember a time when it wasn't. I remember a time when, when you spoke to me that my desire was for the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God and the fear of God. And I experienced that. And you allowed me to help millions of people over 3,000 years with wisdom because I was so connected to you that I trusted you with all my heart and didn't lean on my own understandings. In everything that I did, I acknowledged you and you directed my paths. But since then, I don't trust you anymore. I trust my political alliances. Therefore, I have a thousand wives and concubines. I, I'm leaning on my own understanding, but you know, let them build their, their gods in, in the temple. It doesn't really matter. I'm not acknowledging you as anything, and I'm just dried to the bone. What's changed? Well, I have. You haven't, but I have. And I know that. I know that, but instead of searching, searching after you, I'm going to take up golf. I'm going to take up hunting. I'm going to buy a new sports car. I'm going to start hanging out at bars. I'm going to start um, doing stuff that I never used to do before. I'm going to start deconstructing my Christian faith and start hanging around with non-Christians. I'm going to do drugs. I'm going to look at porn. I'm going to do all the stuff that they told me I couldn't do, but now I can do because that's kind of exciting. That's kind of new to me. I've never done it before, and maybe that will somehow satisfy me. But it doesn't. It just leads to more depression. And then a resolve to find the answer. God, this isn't working. So if this isn't working, what does work? I mean, is there any way that I can find purpose in life without having to repent of my sins and come back to you? By the way, Solomon knew the answer. You know the answer. I know the answer. And yet many of us still make the same mistakes as Solomon. I've got another question for you, God. Another question for myself, really. And here's the question. Verse number 10, first part of it. Is there anything of which it may be say, see, this is new. This is something exciting. This is something you haven't tried before. This is You, you can go like on an African safari and, and sit on some yak and shoot an elephant with a big gun and have a bunch of pictures of tusks. You haven't done that before. That'll be great until you've done it three times, and now that's boring. Is there anything in life, anything on this earth that is really new, that, that's exciting, something that you can devote your life to? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be a mason. I'm going to work all the way up into like the 34th level of the ladder. I'm going to, um, you know, buy a baseball team and I'll just coach all those players and I'll do every. I'll be so busy that I won't even begin to think about the depression I'm in. Is there anything new that can satisfy me and help me get up in the morning? Is there a cause? I will. Uh, I will take on abandoned kitty cats. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build this network of abandoned kitties and to help them through all that. Is there, is there something I can do? And so Solomon's struggling with that. And the answer, of course, is no. I mean, you can be busy or busier doing things that are better than just serving yourself, but it still doesn't give you that satisfaction of knowing that you're living for something bigger than you that has permanence and purpose and direction ordained by God. Something that gives your life lasting meaning so you're not wasting your time on earth. 
we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Those of you who don't know Jesus, you'll be judged for your sins. And it will be a horrific place to be because you have no answer. You have, you'll have to pay the full penalty of your sins, and those sins will be paid by you in hell forever. Those of us who have had our sins paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, we will also stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will be judged for our works. I have saved you of your sins. I've inhabited you with the Holy Spirit. Now tell me what you have done with everything I've done for you. Um, well, I read the Bible through like almost one time, um, like nine years ago. I, I did that, and I, I came to church occasionally, and uh, yeah, I sent my kids to vacation Bible school. I watched uh, all the God's Not Dead movies, and I have a fish decal on the back of my car. that okay? Really? Is that how you would like to answer God when he wants to know what you have done with the sacrifice his son made for you? Everything that we say we have done means nothing. I built this. I raised this. I had this much money. I did it. It's all treasures on earth. Read chapter 6 of Matthew. It's not treasures in heaven. There's nothing new out there. There's nothing exciting out there. What The only thing that is exciting is following him. So to answer your question, Solomon, is there anything new? The answer is no, there's not. Because you're looking for love. You're looking for God's love. You're looking for purpose. You're looking for meaning. You're looking for contentment. You're looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. You will never find it in stuff. You'll never find it in people. You'll only find it in him, in him. And you'll, you'll experience it not when you do things for him, but you allow him to do things through you. Thing is, Solomon knew that, and yet it really didn't matter. Is there anything new under the sun? And here's what he says. It, this what is new under the sun, which is nothing, it has already been in ancient times before us. What I think is new today has already passed. I'm just, I'm just reliving the experience of somebody else. And as a matter of fact, the reason why I'm reliving this experience is because there is no remembrance of former things. There's no remembrance of that experience or even the people who experienced those things, nor will there be any remembrance of me or what I'm experiencing, what I'm doing right now from those who will come after me. Man, I don't know about you, but that sounds a little depression. depressing, does it not? You know, I, I'm making the same mistakes that my great-grandfather made because he's not here to tell me what to do. It. I never even met my great-grandfather, and nobody even thinks about him. But the fact is, what I'm doing right now, trying to teach my kids, they're not going to remember as the generations keep moving on and run this constant cycle of blowing ourselves up on the same landmines everybody else did. Just, just trying to run the clock out, thinking somehow we're making a difference in life, and we're not because it comes from him, just from him. So as a wise man, Solomon says, you know what, I'm not, going to, uh, I'm not going to rest in this depression any longer. Instead, I want to find an answer. So Solomon says, okay, let me start investigating. I want to find out if that's really true. I want to find out if my life is really meaningless. So Solomon then moves into this futile investigation. Well, why do you call it futile? Well, 
it is futile unless, of course, the investigation leads you back to God. And so he starts deciding, here's what I'm going to do then. I want to find an answer to this. And this is kind of the preamble of this entire book. He says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I want to recognize exactly who I am. I understand that I have the time, I have the resources, of, uh, such as uh, this Herculean undertaking of trying to figure out the purpose of life. I mean, I don't have to do anything. I have, I have the wisest people in the world at my disposal. I have all the money that's necessary to investigate these things. So what I want to do is I want to figure out, is there truly any meaning in life? And what happens is Solomon chronicles for us 11 chapters of his painful discovery, trying to find love in all the wrong places, contentment in everything other than God. And we, of course, are blessed enough to be able to read this. And I believe this is why God even included this book in his holy scripture, so that we can see ourselves in these pages, but manifested by someone who had so much more opportunity than we do. I mean, come on, if Solomon can't find purpose in life apart from God, how in the world can we? So Solomon begins, verse 13, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom. Very important that you understand this is not godly wisdom because he does not come to godly conclusions. This is his human wisdom. This godly wisdom he has long since walked away from when he... Um, when he uh, decided to live a life of sin rather than a life of uh, devotion to the Lord. It says, And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under the sun. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they, must be, they may be exercised. What a terrible constructed sentence. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. When I think of exercise, it makes me want to run and hide. I hate that word, you know. But again, we need to understand exactly what it means in the Hebrew. So let's just take a look at this. And again, I'm not going to, I'm just going to show you this. The latter part of this chapter we'll do um, next week. It says, and I set my heart. That Hebrew word is leb. It also means mind. In other words, what he did, I'm going to set my mind to this. I'm going to set my passion, my volition. I'm going to set on, I'm committing myself to seek. And by the way, seek and search are two totally different words in the Hebrew. The word seek here means to try to get or reach something one desires, but I really desire it like a lover or like a girlfriend or a boyfriend. In other words, when I'm seeking it, I'm seeking something that will bring me pleasure or happiness or contentment. The word search means kind of like when the spies would go into the, the uh, foreign land and they would search out the land and go back and give a report to the general and say, hey, this is how that actually works out. They're investigating, they're exploring, they're trying to discover something. So he's got two avenues here. He says, I set my heart to seek and discern and to search out by wisdom. And again, the word literally means skill, experience, or accumulated knowledge, but you need to understand this is human wisdom. Everything that is done under the sun. Very important a distinction we need to make here. When he's talking about things done under the sun in the the syntax of the Hebrew, it is not talking about nature. It is talking about the actions of men. He's talking about art, 
politics, entertainment. He's talking about religion, philosophy. He's talking about just the behavior of men. What I am doing is I'm setting my mind in my heart that I want to search, I want to search and I want to seek out everything I can by wisdom about men about women, about how they function, what makes them happy, what will make me happy. What is it? Does religion make you happy? Do politics make you happy? Does art make you happy? Do I just go and look at the Mona Lisa for eight hours a day and somehow that gives me purpose in my life? So that's the search I'm going after, trying to figure out in all of the world at that time with nothing holding me back because of my immense wealth, is there anything in this world that will give me satisfaction other than God? He knows the answer, but like many of us, he refuses to accept it. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that was done under heaven. And then he describes everything done under heaven. And he calls it this burdensome task. Literally, life. He's talking about life. I am searching for life, the abundant life Jesus talked about, but I'm searching for it in all the wrong places. This burdensome task, this life God has given to all of mankind by which they may be exercised. Strange word. Or to put it another way, I want you to look at how um, the... More modern translations translate this. It gives it a little clearer picture than what we have in the uh, New King James. The NIV says this, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. The ESV, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with, just living and functioning and, and trying to survive in this fallen world. The newest edition of the New American Standard Bible, the 2020 version, says this. It is a sorry task, this New King James calls it, a burdensome task. It is a sorry task which God has given to the son of mankind to be troubled. All of life is full of trouble. In the latest translation of the NASB in 1995, this is how that verse was translated. It is a grievous task which God has given the Son of Men to be afflicted with. Why is life so hard? Why do people die? Why do people betray other people? Why do kids say, I hate their parents? Why do parents leave their children? Why do husband and wife divorce? Why do governments become oppressive? Why is money so hard to hold on to? Why does sickness, health, uh, uh, sickness attack people? Why do bad things happen to good people? You ever ask those questions? is a grievous task to which God has given the sons of men to be afflicted with. The New English translation says this, I conclude, God has given people a burdensome task that keeps them occupied. Oh yeah, if you allow yourself to be occupied by just this world, it will keep you so busy that you will have no time for beauty or love or righteousness or a relationship with God. This is not really a translation. It's a transliteration. Um, it's a new living translation. 
uh, kind of a paraphrase, but it says this, I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I am going to look, I am going to try to discover, and my initial conclusion is life is hard. Life is tough. Life, Life doesn't promise anybody anything but suffering and turmoil and pain, and it happens to good people and it happens to bad people. One of the reasons why God allows his children to suffer like non-believers is because we don't, we, we don't, get, we don't, uh, we don't get this get-out-of-illness card um, when you come to faith with Christ, but we handle it with grace because we have the Lord living in us. I, I could never understand why the Lord would allow Bill Bright, who served him faithfully for 60 years as the head of Campus of Faith from Christ, or crew now that has hundreds of ministries, has ministered to millions of people, why he let him die the horrific death he did. He ended up having a lung, inf- lung infection, and for almost three years, he choked to death on his own bodily fluids. It was horrible way to die. Why, God, would you allow that to happen? Because he wrote a book, and he wrote a book about suffering, and he wrote a book about the grace of God even during tough times. And here's a man who it seems like God would allow just to die peacefully in his sleep while he was you know, watching television one night, but he didn't because he wanted to show mankind, wanted to show people that even in suffering, God is gracious. It is a burdensome task. Here's what he says. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. I've seen everything man has done, good, bad, evil, whatever. And you know what? They're all meaningless. Like grasping at the wind. It's like trying to hold on to something you can't. It's like taking your hand and sticking it into a bucket of water and pulling it back up and hoping that that indention of your hand is still in the water, and it's not, no matter how many times you do it. All of life, Solomon said, is meaningless, pointless, it's vanity, and it has no lasting value like grasping from the wind unless, unless it's infused with God. Solomon, what's the question? I want to know what the meaning of life is. I want to know if there's some way that my life can have purpose. And the answer is, without God, there is no meaning. Without God, there is no purpose. Without God, literally, you're nothing more than an intelligent animal just trying to satisfy your own needs until your body wears out and you die. Isn't that sad? With God, everything changes. And this is coming from the richest and wisest man who ever lived. So I'm going to give you four conclusions that Solomon came to just at the end of chapter 1 in these verses. And I'm going to go through these really quick. And I think that you will find, apart from God, that these conclusions affect every one of us. And here's the first one. Life is hard. It is. It's hard. But nevertheless, all life is a gift from God. All of life. And even though it's difficult and even though it's hard, the fact is God still gives us life. And as long as there's breath in our lungs, there still is an opportunity for salvation and intimacy with him and to have everything changed. I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This hard life, this burdensome task, nevertheless, that God has given me. 
God has placed me where he wants me to be. He's given me this life to live, and I'm to live it in submission to him, which is the only way that you will find true happiness. Number two, life does not get any better if you run from it. If you decide that I'm just going to mentally check out, I'm going to check out by being a workaholic. I'm going to work 60, 80 hours, 120 hours a week. Just work, 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 work to somehow accumulate more and get more. That doesn't make your life any better. Then I'm going to go the opposite direction. I'm just going to get drunk all the time. I'm going to party all the time. I'm just going to forget about everything. I'm just going to kind of check out mentally and wake up with a hangover and do it again tomorrow night. Life doesn't change. You can try to work yourself into oblivion, or you can drink or do drugs into oblivion, or anything in between, but life is hard. And even those things are like grasping from the wind. I remember when when I had, uh, when I used to drink all the time, uh, I didn't drink, um, I didn't drink to get drunk. I drank because I hated being sober. Can you understand the difference? I was running from being sober. Not that I just enjoyed getting drinking to the point that you would just be sick, but instead I hated my life. And so therefore, if I could drink or do drugs or whatever it was, I would do it in such a way that for a time, for a season, just for a little bit, I didn't have to be me anymore. I could think about something else, but the sun still came up the next morning and I still woke up and still facing the same problems. Life doesn't get any easier if you try to run from it, no matter what your poison is. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, what everybody's tried to do. The fact is, everything is vanity, a grasping of the wind, including running from life. Number three, not everything can be changed. God is sovereign. You may have been a terrible dad to your children. You may have been a terrible husband to your wife. You may have done horrible things and they want nothing to do with you anymore. And then all of a sudden in your despair, you get saved and everything is wonderful. And you go back and apologize to them and expect life to be like everything forgiven and like it was. It doesn't, doesn't always work that way. In Romans chapter 1, God three times says, I gave them up, I gave them up, I gave them over to the consequences of their sins. And sometimes those consequences follow you the rest of your life. There are some things that in life that just can't be fixed. Next verse. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. You may change, but it doesn't mean the circumstances of your sin will change. That's something that God has to give you grace to deal with. And number four, wisdom and experience will not always solve every problem, no matter how hard you wish they can. I'll think really hard and I'll, 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 I'll work really hard and I'll do this and it seems logical to me. It doesn't work that way. Some things can be resolved. Some things can't. Some things are just like scars that we carry around that show us the pain that we put ourselves through. We can be changed from the inside, but that doesn't necessarily mean all relationships change. And we find this in the last few verses of this chapter. I communed with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness. 
This is Solomon. And I've gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. I've made you know, great strides in my life. I've gone to college. I've got a doctorate degree and two master's degree. And I'm, I'm, I'm working for John Hopkins right now, saving little cancer patients. I'm doing all these incredible things. That should fix everything in my life, void of God. And the answer is no. It doesn't work that way. I set to my heart to know wisdom and madness and folly. I wanted to know what was right and what was really stupid and then the combination between those two. I perceived that even trying to know those things were grasping from the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief. We will look at that next week. And he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow. Increases sorrow. So we've got Solomon here who is beginning this odyssey, this journey of trying to find a meaning in his life, and he can't find it outside of God. He will, he will take you down every path imaginable, trying to find happiness. The vanity of pleasure is the next chapter. And then he's going to, when we get to chapter three, we have this about everything having a time. You know, the time to be born, time to die, time to plant, time to pluck up what is planted. You you know that verse, probably from the, I think it's the birds that sang that song many, many, many years ago. But the point is, there is a time ordained for everything in life. And for us today, the time for us is to look at our life and look at the meaning behind our life and decide we want things to be different. It doesn't mean that you do more. It doesn't mean that you, that you take on more on your plate. What it means is you place the very most important thing in your life first, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and you do exactly what the song Levi sang today states, is you surrender all. I surrender all. If Solomon would have done that, Lord, I, res- I surrender my wisdom, my wealth, my past experiences. I surrender the mistakes that I've made, the sins that I've made. Lord, I don't even know how to get out of the mess I've created but I know you can do that for me. I surrender my desires, my wants. I desire it. I surrender it all to you. Will you take everything that I've made of my life, which is a mess? This is the great exchange. And would you give me your life, which is perfect? And when that happens, everything changes. If you know Christ, you know that's true. But if you're far from Christ... You've walked away from that like Solomon has because you've listened to the toys and trinkets and the the sirens of this world more than the still small voice of him. And I want to encourage you today to come back to him now, right now. Amen? Let me pray.